the U.S. military's approach is really based on what the U.S. government's approach has been. And if we're honest about it, the U.S. government is really having a, a major moment of reckoning with extremism. We value mental resiliency, we value physical fitness, we value marksmanship. We, there's no reason why we shouldn't also try to make our service members harder targets against misinformation. Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Soch Podcast, where nothing human is alien to us. This is your producer, Major Haziano, from the Department of Social Sciences of West Point. For today's episode, we've got two prominent members of the Soch Department, Ms. Audrey Alexander and Major Mike Robinson, on the show to talk about the military and extremism, a topic that's been gaining increasing attention since the events of January 6, 2021. Ms. Audrey Alexander is a researcher and instructor from the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. She holds a master's degree in terrorism, security, and society from the War Studies Department at King's College London and was a senior research fellow at George Washington University's program on extremism prior to coming to West Point. Major Mike Robinson is an assistant professor of international affairs at West Point and is a repeat guest of the podcast. He received his Ph.D. in political science from Stanford University, where his research focused on civil-military relations and partisan polarization. We brought these two experts together to talk about the emerging concerns over extremism in the military, how the portrayal of this threat is sometimes distorted, and what the military, government, and the public should do to respond. So, without further delay, please enjoy the episode. Hi, this is Audrey Alexander. I'm a researcher and instructor at West Point's Combating Terrorism Center. Today, I'm here with Major Mike Robinson, who is an assistant professor of international relations here at West Point. Uh, hi, Audrey. Good to be back on the podcast. It is great to have you here today, and um, I'm honored to join the Soch podcast myself, especially for this important discussion that we're here to have today about civil relations and extremism. I'd like to jump right into today's discussion around matters concerning extremism, violent extremism, uh, and highlight why this topic is so relevant to national security, uh, particularly in the context of civil relations. Mike, can you please tee us up and offer a quick overview of your recent work on this topic, particularly your recent op-ed in the New York Times with Corey Shockey, and really highlight how this pertains to civil relations? Yeah, this really is a, an event that we can couch pretty firmly in, in a large literature of civil-military relations and, and research, not just by myself, by the way. There's uh, a lot of great scholars out there who are doing work on the relationship between the public and the military, particularly when it comes to the trust and confidence that seems to be very high and very durable with the American public uh, and its military. Uh, Dave Burbach of the Naval War College, Jim Golby at the University of Texas are doing a lot of great work on this. Uh, as well as uh, attitudes about the domestic use of the military for various purposes. We have to remember that the other side of the military's involvement in, in the events of January the 6th was, for the second time in a year, the, the military being deployed to the capital region for some kind of law enforcement practice. And uh, and Jessica Blankshane and, and Lindsey Kahn at the Naval War College and Danielle Lupton at Colgate University have recently done some great survey experimentation with regards to this subject in particular. But my own research on this is, is typically focused on uh, how the perception of the military as a potentially partisan or ideologically biased actor uh, could potentially degrade the, that trust that the, the public seems to have in the military. And obviously the events of January the 6th and the, as we'll talk about, the, the proportion of, of veterans and, and active duty service members who are part of that uh, insurrectionist crowd could potentially have negative implications on the, the public's relationship to its military. And so in the piece that uh, I wrote with uh, Corey Shockey at the American Enterprise Institute, we were trying to convey quite simply that there are three different 
ways we should conceptualize this to understand our, our the role of, of the of veterans on in the events of that day. The first is that um, any number of veterans who were present should be normatively problematic. That this uh, is an issue in absolute terms and not in relative ones. There was a lot of reporting on the disproportionate amount of veterans present, as as we'll talk about. That's kind of a, of a red herring. Uh, the second piece was that veterans can offer more than just material assets to violent extremist groups. They are obviously actively recruited by many of these groups, but one of the more dangerous commodities they can offer is political legitimacy, is some sort of mainstream legitimation. Uh, and the third is that because veterans are the private citizens, that the civilians in leadership roles between the DOD and government have more of a role in managing the extremist threat posed by that community than for the active service. Great, and I'm excited to dig in a little bit more later to further discuss veterans, but just to sort of take a step back and look at the extremism problem set writ writ large and trying to situate it within sort of different parts of uh, American government and politics today, I think it's really interesting as someone who teaches our introductory class here at West Point, especially as a civilian, because one point I always try to make to students is that terminology is subjective and what constitutes extremism, violent extremism, terrorism, even other forms of political violence really depends on who you ask, even within different parts of the government. So uh, how the State Department conceptualizes it is different from how the FBI uh, defines terrorism. So at the end of the day, policies and laws are what help governments start drawing those lines and determine what those thresholds are. And these lines are imperfect, but still really important, even if they can be sort of uh, loose definitions. So it's not really clear what the hard and fast rules are or, um, you know, they can be narrow definitions as well. But with that foundation, I think it also helps to talk about the oaths of office that we take. And when we say we will uh, support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, uh, we actually have to kind of remember that it's 2021, and there are some important considerations when we talk about what constitutes foreign and domestic. So uh, one consideration is we need to remember that transnational threats, even those with roots in sort of this domestic landscape, are increasingly common. And another consideration is that from a legal perspective, we often think of domestic and international terrorism and violent extremism in fundamentally uh, different ways in the eyes of the law. So now that we look at how the military is going to work to address this, we also need to sort of put it in the prism of this broader uh, U.S. government landscape where we don't necessarily see domestic and international extremism uh, through the same prism. So working to combat extremism in the military is one thing, and the DOD is certainly starting to take steps on that front with uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin's mandated stand-down day and the recent creation of the counter-extremism working group led by Bishop Garrison. I want to talk about uh, sort of the policy implications more in a few minutes, but for now, let's dig into a specific population's involvement in the January 6th attack on the Capitol, veterans. What are some of the challenges, nuances, and considerations when uh, we look at veterans and extremism? And again, I, I'd love for you to elaborate uh, on your op-ed a little bit more and sort of the challenges that come with talking about this really diverse population. Yeah, it's a great point. I, I think one of the things that uh, we tried to get across in this piece is, is first of all, uh, the early reporting that focused a lot on the statistics about the proportion of veterans and active duty military who were present. It was kind of a misnomer, as, as the report uh, authored by, by Dan Milton and, and Andrew Mines between the CTC and, and George Washington accurately 
uh, sort of characterizes it, once we account for the fact this was not a random sample of Americans, then the number of veterans present is actually not that shocking. What we really should be focusing on is the, the normative problems that come with having any veterans present at all. Uh, and the reason why there's there's some complications here is that the the ability to control the radicalization of the veteran community is not all within the hands of the DoD. Is once those soldiers, airmen, Marines, pass into private life, they they're no longer the purview of the military. Uh, there is strong reason to believe from a lot of the data that we've looked at from the University of Maryland's Pyrus data set that it seems like a lot of veterans who become members of right wing extremist groups end up radicalizing after their service time. Now, that isn't to suggest that the active duty military has no role in combating this challenge. In fact, you, you mentioned um, the, the measures that Secretary Austin has taken in order to, to root out extremism within the ranks of the active force, and that is absolutely uh, a necessary step in combating this challenge. In fact, recent reporting uh, just a couple weeks ago from Carol Lee at NBC News was uh, reporting on the Facebook groups trafficked by many members of the uh, U.S. Special Forces community in which there seemed to be a lot of the same mis- and disinformation that gave rise to the events of the 6th of January present in, in an online forum where active duty service members were regularly trafficking it. But the veteran community is a little bit more nuanced. They represented more, more than 95% of the insurrectionists on the 6th. Uh, and we're going to need a, a more holistic approach to, to dealing with the radicalization of that community because it will not just be military members who are responsible for that, for that group. As it's civilian leaders, uh, both within the, the Pentagon and within uh, government, are going to, to have to make sure that there is no longer any sort of political permission structure that exists to ever legitimate uh, violence of any type, uh, and, and obviously we want to make sure that our our service members who are departing service are hardened to targets against misinformation. And that's definitely a measure that the the serving military leaders can take, and that once they cross into private life, they are no longer poachable targets for recruitment by by extremist organizations. So veterans are also a topic of great interest to our team at the CTC, and thanks also for, for highlighting the report by uh, my colleagues at both the Program on Extremism and the Combating Terrorism Center. Just to highlight that report a little bit more, uh, Dr. Daniel Melton is our research director at the Combating Terrorism Center, and he and Andrew Mines from the GW Program on Extremism just published a new report called This is War, which examined the military experience of capital siege participants. So the report used federal court documents to examine the prevalence of demographics and the characteristics of individuals with military experience who were charged for their involvement in the January 6th siege. And uh, I don't want to get into necessarily all of the key findings, especially because we've already talked a little bit about some of the statistics here, but we already know that veterans are a notable population. But another thing that I found really interesting um, within their research was that there appears to be a greater prevalence of affiliation with domestic violent extremist organizations among arrestees with military experience than those without. So what this boils down to is in their data set, they were kind of disaggregating the, the nature of the connection that individuals had to the ideas and groups that led them to participate in the, the capital siege. And those with military experience were more sort of connected to organizations and networks rather than sort of showing up out of, on their own. Uh, so they, there was sort of a group dynamic, which I think is really interesting and has implications for sort of that de demographic or segment of the population. 
um, that we should sort of take stock of. So uh, my colleagues concluded their report with some interesting notes about the reality that there's a large amount of nuance when it comes to arrestees with military experience. So there are young and old participants. There are folks from every branch of service. Uh, there are people with short careers, long careers. Ultimately, what they found is that there are all these important nuances that show that there's really need for more research and continued care in dealing with this difficult issue. And I think at the, the end of the day, we're still so early in identifying trends and really studying this seriously. So it is going to be something that takes time and resources to come to, to better understand. Yeah, I think it's a great point, and I and I totally agree. We're talking about a problem set which, by its design, is opaque. It is uh, essentially trying to conceal itself, and uh, even scholars who have who have devoted a considerable amount of research to this question, we look at uh, Kathleen Billy's book, Bring the War Home, which talks about how the intersection of, of extremist groups and veterans is not new. Uh, the drawdown following the Vietnam War led to a wide-scale disillusionment across an entire generation of veterans. Uh, who were then poachable targets for the Klan, for various uh, organizations who um, had grief with uh, with government, with with racial minorities. Uh, R.A. Perlinger's book, American Zealots, talks about more contemporary cases, the neo-Nazi ring at Fort Bragg during the 1990s. These are certainly episodes that we've encountered in the past, but the problem has always been getting some understanding of the size and scope of the challenge within the active ranks, and this is because it is very difficult to acquire that data. But as you notice, dedicated research and a concerted effort to collect that information and, and and to try to deter or, or prevent um, individuals from joining the ranks at all who have those sensibilities would be a, a great step in the right direction. So just to sort of hark on two things before I dive into the next one, one for the data point, it, it's really important because the military in many ways has a terrific amount of data, but when you start to look at the veteran population, you sort of run into the same issues that we see with other instances of tracking violent extremism. So for example, uh, in the United States, we don't necessarily have domestic organizations to sort of signify and delineate what constitutes uh, membership of extremist groups in quite the same way. Moreover, the way that a lot of these organizations are structured, you don't necessarily have the same type of membership structure in every single group or, or uh, sort of network. So that's really an important consideration. But one other thing that I'd really like to flag is uh, exactly the point that Mike just made, that this isn't the first time we're seeing this issue, and realistically, it's not going to be the last. And uh, moreover, we're not even the only country that's struggling with this problem. In Germany, for example, the, the veteran population and active duty, especially special forces community in Germany, are dealing with these issues as well. But I think that one thing that I sort of think about when we, we talk about these trends is the sense of purpose that comes uh, with the military and life in the military. And similarly, looking for a sense of purpose, a brotherhood, a community, uh, sort of this bigger mission than yourself. That's something that the military gives people for the better. Uh, and I've been able to sort of witness that firsthand as a civilian coming to a military academy and sort of the sense of purpose that comes with that. So we also really need to understand what it means when people leave the military and uh, still want a sense of purpose and where they might find that. And how can we identify constructive ways to help veteran populations continue uh, a mission in some capacity? So that's sort of just a, a broader perspective, but I think it's a starting point for that conversation. 
Okay, so now I really want to pivot and sort of think more about some big picture considerations about new media and uh, mass media. So last week, uh, I was in D.C. and I was speaking with a friend who's an officer who's serving as a congressional fellow. And we were talking uh, about our mutual participation in Stand Down Day. And separately, we also talked about media coverage of a recent congressional testimony. So long story short, we were sort of highlighting the notion that we are having really uh, sincere problems today with extremism in the military, but at the same time, some of the media coverage uh, of these issues is sensationalized or doesn't necessarily take time to unpack uh, these important nuances that we're raising in our discussion today. So that really can either help or hurt this perception versus reality um, or this view of perception versus reality. So uh, that's sort of on the side of mass media, but I think we also need to have a conversation about social media and look at how social media can also facilitate a productive encounter, productive conversation on issues of extremism in the military. So I'd be curious to hear uh, your thoughts on this dynamic because on the mass media side, you know, there's incredible resources for accountability and transparency, but media can also oversimplify or sensationalize. And similarly, when we look at social media, earlier you were raising uh, the disinformation uh, and misinformation problem set and how that can really affect um, both the active duty and veteran populations realistically. So as an expansion, um, I think it would be useful to highlight the specific perception of the military being a potential breeding ground for domestic violent extremist networks, including those that are motivated by racially and ethnically motivated violent extremism like white supremacy, as well as militia violent extremist groups. How much of this is based on statistics and how much of this is really more of a messaging effort, whether it's by some of these extremist groups that are working to co-opt military images to create this perception or even mass media? This is also, I think, a, a really important point, which is about the attempts by, in many cases, right-wing extremist groups to blur the lines between themselves and the active duty military. Uh, and this flows from the larger literature that I mentioned before about the trust and confidence that the American public has in the armed forces, is that this is essentially an attempt to siphon off some of that credibility in order to provide a mainstream legitima uh, legitimation for the, for the groups themselves. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at a, a line from uh, from Ari Perlinger's book, and, and, and he mentions specifically uh, that the main reason that the demographic composition of militia groups like the Oath Keepers or the Three Percenters, uh, which rely on former law enforcement and veterans to fill their ranks, is, is important is because uh, it helps them to, quote, maintain public legitimacy despite their involvement in violent incidents, unquote. Uh, so when we talk about the media portrayal of these groups, if, if they're able to successfully blur the lines between the active military force for whom the public has a, a very high positive affect and violent extremist groups who maybe are wearing the same equipment or carrying military-themed flags or using the iconography of, of colonial America, um, it, then the media environment as it exists right now, which as you mentioned is incredibly complicated, could actually further those aims to blur the lines between the two groups. And then we run into an issue of, of conflating the actually constitutionally empowered military with an actual portfolio of responsibilities on behalf of the government with uh, violent paramilitary organizations who in many cases have interests uh, very much opposed to those of the government. So I think you've really highlighted uh, two important points here. And one is looking at this gap between 
the tactical benefits versus the strategic benefits. So when we look at media coverage, there's often this emphasis on the tactical benefits that that active duty and veterans afford to violent extremist groups and sort of the potential that they offer uh, with this notion that they have leadership skills or uh, skills with different weapon types or knowledge about uh, explosive devices, etc. But really, I think that you've highlighted an important point here, and there's a lot of strategic value because it adds legitimacy, it adds character, it adds um, a different ethos. And just the fact that, um, you know, a lot of these groups, especially when you look at the militia organizations, are emulating uh, military forces. It's sort of seen, again, as this, um, I, I think that there is sort of a degree of masculinity, a degree of, like, securitization, a degree of legitimacy. They're creating their own patches. You know, like, they're trying to really not just sort of mimic uh, hierarchy, structure, and, and ethos, but also look the part which I think sort of uh, lends itself to some of these roles because I don't, I don't think that it always is necessarily tactical benefit, but that strategic part is something we need to understand because I think that that's really the opportunity space we have to start challenging. Um, and also asking people to be accountable and holding people accountable. So another point that I sort of want to emphasize is that there's oftentimes sort of no middle space in, in media coverage of uh, how the military is coping with violent extremism. And this is something that I think we need to be really aware of and, and vigilant about, especially as consumers of mass media, because realistically, we're somewhere in between where the military now recognizes that we have a problem, but we're, we're struggling to figure out what that means or how to deal with it. So when you look at media coverage, it's either not an issue and people are overhyping uh, the problem of extremism in the military, or conversely, the military isn't sufficiently recognizing whatsoever that there is a problem and that leaders within the military are completely dismissive of it. And we need to recognize that this is a really big issue, so reality is not going to be on one side or the other, but across the entire spectrum. And there are going to be different instances that that cover that whole gambit. So taking time, resources, and energy to sort of challenge our, our views and, and remain critical and understanding that this is a complex problem that's going to take time to fix. So based on your perspectives of these issues, could you share some policy recommendations, considerations, or flag opportunities for progress? Absolutely. I think there's uh, probably a, a number of things that uh, various interested parties can can achieve in order to at least minimize the challenge. As you noted before, it, it, it may be a bridge too far to consider ever completely eliminating the threat posed by extremist groups, whether in the active force or amongst veterans. But there are ways to attack this on the margins. I think uh, from, from the Department of Defense's perspective, there's already been some aggressive moves to ensure that there are um, you know, background checks for individuals who are coming into the service. I think uh, also making it clear what the institution stands for. It is a, a values-based organization, both the military and the Department of Defense, and the, the commission being named to, uh, for instance, rename military installations that are currently named in honor of Confederate generals, right? This is a, it may seem tangential, but it, this is about um, conveying to the American public where the actual values of the military are as a way to create space between itself and, and violent organizations who are often possessed of racial supremacist ideology or anti-federal ideology. Uh, when we talk about journalism, I think that there is a responsible way to report on these groups. 
Corey Shockey, uh, my, my co-author from the piece in the Times, you know, very recently uh, was quoted in a Task and Purpose article about the military backgrounds uh, for individuals who engage in violence, that sometimes we often focus on the military backgrounds, even if they are not materially relevant to what happened during the case, that oftentimes it's just a piece of trivia about the individual, that they were able to achieve some measure of political violence with training that they could have gotten off of the internet. Uh, and so we don't need to help compound the problem of conflating violent extremist groups with the active service uh, by maybe unduly focusing on the military backgrounds of individuals who engage in violence when that background is not uh, critical to, to what, had, what had happened. Uh, for the active force, I think that there is a significant role for educating the public on the difference between the active core and veterans. It may seem... Um, it may seem strange for, you know, for those of us who, who walk around West Point in uniform all day that maybe the public, uh, how is it possible they couldn't know the difference, right? There's a strong reason to believe that when they see retired generals, for instance, on cable news, that they, the average citizen can't tell the difference between the retired and the active military. And so making that distinction uh, clear to the public is important. Uh, Peter Singer and Eric Johnson in a piece in War on the Rocks back in February made a very strong case, I think, for improving the digital literacy of soldiers while they're in the in the active service. This includes uh, formalized training to make them harder targets for mis- and disinformation. We uh, have certainly overlooked this in the past, but we value mental resiliency. We value physical fitness. We value marksmanship. We, there's no reason why we shouldn't also try to make our service members harder targets against misinformation. Uh, and for civilian leaders, they obviously have the the duty and the responsibility of oversight uh, for the military. And we're, we're seeing some of that uh, come to fruition now with the, with the measures that Secretary Austin has put in place. Uh, but civilian leaders also bear the responsibility to ensure that we're being specific about the challenges that we're countering. Uh, and to prevent a political permission structure to be created where, where violence could be legitimated in any way. Uh, and so these are important um, measures that could be taken by a lot of interested stakeholders in this, in this problem in order to combat the challenge of extremism in, in the military. So I'm really glad that uh, at the end there you highlighted the notion that a lot of stakeholders can participate in this. And I think that one thing that you know, both inside the military and outside the military, we often get caught up on is just how great these problems are and how daunting it is to actually make meaningful progress and, and challenge these issues. But realistically, we have so many different stakeholders and so many different players and actually so many different institutions that can be really good uh, opportunity spaces to start working on this, even if, um, you know, the measures aren't perfect. I think that it is very important to have sort of a tolerance and an expectation for uh, the time it's going to take and the energy that it's going to take, but then also a shared commitment to that mission and to that vision and understanding how it can not only affect the country, but affect the strength of our forces. Um, and I think that especially with the number, uh, just the range of stakeholders that can count here, whether it's civil society groups and organizations um, that create service opportunities for veterans and sort of bring together co community opportunities to connect with others, whether it's uh, VA and looking at, you know, uh, to what extent could the VA continue to engage in this area, 
the military, and also lots of institutions within the military, not sort of just the, the command structure, but uh, military academies. And one of the coolest things to me as an instructor of SS-465, which is our sort of introductory terrorism class, is that I've gotten feedback from cadets saying like, hey, this ends up being the most practical class for me because I end up learning how to think and communicate about these dynamic issues and talk about like, the, how subjective these terms are and why we need to sort of take time and uh, understand these nuances or what motivates people to engage in this type of activity to really understand how you're going to take time to combat it. So that's something that we've learned how to do with our adversaries abroad. But we also need to understand how we can look inward and, and combat these problems domestically as well. Um, so even though it is daunting, digital literacy is is totally viable. During my time uh, as an Army civilian, I've learned that there are lots of opportunities for online training. And even though we like to dismiss them, and I'm not necessarily advocating for, for all the online training in the world, it shows that we have the apparatus and the ability to uh, lead on these issues. And that can in turn affect the public, uh, especially looking at sort of the long-term effect, effects of working to combat uh, a range of issues within the military and how that can affect civilian population as well. So ultimately, it's also important to note that we can't untangle these issues from other issues that we're having in the United States, whether it relates to uh, racial equality or gender discrimination, sexual violence. You know, all of these things can sort of uh, come together and create this really big fissure between the United States and, and the military and or the U.S. public and, and the military and sort of erode trust between these institutions, especially when you continue seeing news stories about murders not being taken seriously on posts and extremism in the military or veteran population. So I really think that we should see this as an opportunity to uh, continue working towards a more unified uh, country by way of the military, by way of accountability and transparency, and also patience and understanding uh, that these issues are going to take a long time, but also that everybody and every stakeholder can also contribute to that mission. So I'd like to start wrapping up, and you, you hit on this in your comments just a minute ago, but talking about the civ part of civ-mill relations and remembering that the civil side is really responsible for setting the tone and agenda on these issues and driving a broader discussion about what constitutes extremism, violent extremism, and terrorism. And I feel this really strongly because the U.S. military's approach is really based on what the U.S. government's approach has been. And if we're honest about it, the U.S. government is really having a, a major moment of reckoning with extremism and what co constitutes violent extremism. And even since January 6th, if you look at some of the congressional hearings that are happening, different testimony, who's testifying, uh, we're starting to see a real shift in, in mood and tone and toleration, or lack thereof, of violent extremism. Um, but I think that we also need to look to political leaders in the United States to say, you know, what's the lead on this? Because I do believe that the, or that the military has terrific opportunities to, to be a leader within this, but that leadership needs to come also from the civ part of the civ-military relations. Um, and I think that one other last reminder is that we also need to look to our allies because, like I said earlier, the United States is not the only country that's grappling with these issues, and uh, we aren't 
it's going to continue uh, expanding. So we need to work with our allies to better understand the threats uh, that we're facing, especially when they're transnational, what other practices uh, other states are using to, to combat extremism within their own forces, and not just military forces, but also law enforcement. So even though it's easy to be frustrated and overwhelmed by how complex this problem is, I think that there are numerous opportunities to start acting in this arena. And uh, I'm excited and proud to be part of a department that seems to be forward-leaning on that, including featuring podcasts on these issues and facilitating robust discussions on this and supporting research and, and publications that, that confront it head-on. So for both the Senator, uh, the Combating Terrorism Center, and the department, I think it's um, a tremendous time to feel like we can contribute to this space, and it's a privilege to do so. I think it's a, a great way to, to sign off, and, and I'll only conclude by, by talking about the three kind of points in the sky that you mentioned before, um, the first being the, the civ and the civ mill portion. You know, we forget too often that the, the civilian component uh, first uh, includes more than just the executive branch, that the, the Congress has significant responsibility for oversight and authorities when it comes to uh, how, the, how military ethics and, and, uh, and, and organizational practices are conducted. The second point is the other part of the civ part of, uh, of civil military relations, which is the public. Uh, the mass public, we could argue, is the ultimate end user of military service. Uh, that the, the military's role to fight and win wars, the the ultimate uh, benefactor of that is the American people. And so, when we talk about why it's important for the military to maintain a positive image with its public, it, it's more than just recruitment, retention, or budget. Uh, it has to do with building a positive affect with. The client who is who is the American people, uh, and that means saying not just what the military is against extremism or or radical ideologies, but also what it is for uh, inherent human value, organizational ethics, team building, diversity as a strength. Uh, and the third piece that you mentioned is about foreign audiences that off uh, that uh, too often we forget that the ability of the United States to uh, to engage in a global dialogue about the importance of democratic government is often conditional on its ability to keep its own house in order. And so when we talk about the, the fact that a, a, a nonpartisan military, a trustworthy military, is a load-bearing pillar of any stable democracy, uh, then it strengthens the, the United States' hand in, in dealing with uh, public discourse on issues like what's going on in Myanmar, where we have a, you know, a military government taking, uh, taking power. You know, we, it gives you a stronger bargaining position to say, uh, that the United States has sort of lived by its own example. Uh, and so I, I think that those are all great points. And that's a wrap for this edition of the Soch Podcast. Thanks for listening, and if you enjoy what you heard, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a sterling five-star review. If you have any comments, suggestions, or critiques, reach out to us by emailing Lab at westpoint.edu. We're always excited to hear from our listeners, cadets, social alumni, and friends of the department. Thanks again to Miss Audrey Alexander and to Major Mike Robinson for coming on to the podcast. This is Major Mike Robinson's last semester teaching at West Point, and he'll be returning to the operational force soon as an Army strategist. We wish him well on his future assignment. If you're interested in learning more about the Combating Terrorism Center, be sure to check out their website at ctc.usma.edu. The CTC also publishes a monthly newsletter called the CTC Sentinel, which covers contemporary terrorism issues. It is accessible for free through their website. 
The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and should not be seen as reflective of the official positions of the United States Military Academy, the U.S. Army, the Department of Defense, or any government entity. And last but not least, thanks as always to the West Point Band for allowing us to use their music. This is Major Yano signing off.